Please turn with me to Galatians. I'll, uh, I'll talk in depth about verses 6 through 10, but I'll go ahead and read verses 1 through 10. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask you to be with us now, to open our ears and our minds to understand, and especially our wills uh, to purpose to follow in what you have taught. We thank you, Lord, for this time. We ask you to be with us in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, two months ago, uh, we began this series on Galatians. And so some of you might not remember, and some of you probably weren't here, but uh, I'll recap probably not more than a minute on what verses 1 through 5 introduced. And what they introduced was the fact that Galatians is incredibly unique as one of Paul's letters. Uh, there are several things about Galatians that Paul does only in Galatians, and so it's a very unique letter. I'll only really highlight two of those things. Uh, the first is the greeting. Paul's greeting to the Galatians was unusual because it was so cool and formal. And in his greeting, he was rebuking these people. Uh, he had probably been in Galatia about a year and a half to two years earlier, probably not a whole lot longer than that. And so he was there. He was a witness to their conversion to Christ. And yet here they are falling away from the truth of the gospel very quickly. And the, the other thing that he does that's kind of unusual is that he defends both his apostleship and he presents the gospel in a nutshell. In a very small greeting, he does both of those things that he doesn't do in any of his other letters. So I just want you to remember that Galatians is kind of unique. Galatians is a defense of the gospel to a people who seem to have forgotten so quickly what it was. And so we can sometimes be guilty of that, and so Galatians is a reminder to every Christian what it is that makes them different, what the gospel's all about. Now, in verse 6, we'll begin our text, and I want to begin with an illustration. We talk a lot here. I do my share of it. And uh, let's say that you were walking past me out in the hall, and you're just passing, I'm talking to somebody, and this is what you hear. You overhear me say this. 
So I reached out, grabbed her by her ponytail, and yanked her backwards. That's all you heard. And you're walking away puzzling over that, what you overheard. You didn't try to overhear it, you just overheard it. And yet as you're walking past me, you're thinking, this doesn't make any sense. What is he talking about? Well, what you might have missed is this. Otherwise, the car would have hit her. So see, you didn't hear the whole story. You only heard a part of it that was out of character for me, I would hope you'd think. (laughs) And yet, I was doing something that was necessary at the moment. And yet, you think, what on earth is he doing that for? And yet, in context, it makes perfect sense. And uh, it is said, desperate times call for desperate measures. So that's what Paul is doing here. He's acting in desperate times. And his acting in desperate times called him to take desperate measures with these Galatians. This is not your usual letter. When he wrote to the Corinthians, he wrote to them about all kinds of sins that were in their lives. But he didn't write to them with the forcefulness and the frustration and anger, frankly, that he writes to the Galatians with. And so he says, I marvel that you have so soon forgotten. I marvel. He is just stupefied by what it is that he's heard about them. And he wants to correct it very quickly, very, very quickly. So now people criticize Paul. As a matter of fact, a few years ago, Pastor Kaiser preached through Acts. And one of the things he covered was where Paul and Barnabas have a dispute and split up over uh, whether Mark will come with them on their missionary journey or not. And I was later in a book study at work on the book of Acts, and everyone was quick to judge Paul as being in the wrong. He was just too hard-hearted. That's just hard-hearted Paul. And I was quick to defend what Pastor Kaiser had taught us. No, Paul wasn't being hard-hearted. Paul had a priority. You've seen Maslow's... uh, Uh, pyramid, you know, what is the uppermost goal, fulfilling your ultimate objectives in this world? Well, Paul's is God. That top of that pyramid is filled with God. He will be faithful to God. Next, he will be faithful to the truth of the word and to the gospel. And third, he will be faithful and build that church of which he was a founding member. So he has a pecking order of loyalty. He has a pecking order of who he's serving and who he's being loyal to. The church is who he's writing to here in Galatia, right? And yet he's being very harsh with them. And someone who reads the Bible superficially might be quick to judge Paul. Say, where does Paul come off judging these people so harshly? Well, it's because of the fact that they were getting the gospel wrong. They were making errors in that second thing that's most important next to God. And they're in number three. So he is having to correct them quickly such that they can get their number two correct. Get it down pat. Get rid of the errors that are in there. So his purpose is to save souls, yes. But his purpose is to save souls in the context of building the truth of the kingdom. And that all revolves around the message of the gospel, which is extremely important for us to get right. He's writing to these Galatians fearful that the gospel in Galatia is going to be exterminated because he has heard. He's acting on knowledge here. He knows these people are getting a lot of traction with how they have been maligning 
the truth of the gospel. He says, I marvel that you are turning away to a different gospel. That's a, that's a summary of what he said. Now, why? Why is Paul marveling? Has he not seen this before? I don't know. I don't, I don't think maybe he has. At this point, Paul's been a Christian for probably about 13 years. And we all know that when he became a Christian, he became a Christian. Out and out for Jesus. He was a Jesus freak, which I hope all of you are. And so we know that he was thoroughly, thoroughly humbled and emptied by the gospel. He was fully converted as a soldier of the Lord. He abandoned all that he had stood for before that. He had been on fire for Judaism, for this law justification. And yet here he was on fire now for Christ. So he knows what it is to be saved. He knows what it is to be faithful to the Lord. And yet here he's writing to these Galatians whom he witnessed their conversion just a few years earlier. And that fire doesn't appear to be in them like it's in him. And he's concerned. Peter described what the experience of responding to the call of God is, I think, very beautifully in, in the first letter of Peter. In chapter 2, starting at verse 9, we read this. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That you may proclaim that. You see, only those who have been converted can proclaim that. We are the converted. We are the ones who have been entrusted by God with that privilege of proselytizing, of spreading the gospel in our culture. So do we do it? That's the question. Only those that have experienced the salvation of the gospel are those that God entrusts with proclaiming the light, the marvelous light of the gospel. But now Paul is amazed because I don't believe Paul ever turned off his light. It was always on. He was always on fire for Christ. And so this is perhaps his first experience with a people in mass that he watched converted, falling away, slipping away, growing cold. And he wants to correct it. I want to ask you, I want to speak a, for a bit about the importance of questions. Paul is answering a question here. What's going wrong in Galatia? He's answering it with what, what he believes has gone wrong. And so I want to focus on questions. Questions really drive our lives. And I don't know that everybody realizes that. For instance, what you do every day is an endless series of actions based on an answer to one of two simple questions. Did you know that? What you ask yourself all day long is, what do I want to do? And it's asked in two forms. What do I feel like doing? And what do I have to do? They don't always agree. Those that are weakest in answering the question, what do I have to do, are the type that lose their jobs, job after job after job, because each morning they ask themselves, 
do I want to go to work? And they often say, no, I don't want to go to work today. And so they don't. And so they get fired. They justify it. That job wasn't worth it anyway. You know, they don't really respect me. They don't understand me. Well, you know, they don't need to. You just need to go there and do your work, right? But people justify answering these questions in many ways. What do I have to do versus what do I want to do? So what you want to do can drive you. Like, for instance, if you're not a Christian, if you're not driven by a, by a solid, or if you're not a legalist, you know, uh, but, but people on this earth are driven by what they feel they have to do in order to fit into someone else's expectations, be that anyone on earth or some god of their imagination. But they try to live their lives in conformity with that. Where we really get into crazy times is where people don't have anything like that. All they have is themselves. They are their own God. They don't live to please anybody except themselves. And so they can answer that question from moment to moment. Uh, can I choose to lie, cheat, or steal in order to get ahead right now? Sure. You know, they have only to answer to themselves. So questions drive our lives every day. Every day you ask yourself, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Those of, us who, those of us with kids have gone through that. Uh, when I was a kid, I went to public school, and all summer long I'd ask my mom, Mom, what can I do? Mom, what can I do? I'm bored. And, you know, those of us that have kids that ask us that question, they don't, they don't come and ask us too long uh, after that. Go clean your room. You know, there are leaves out there to be raked up. There's a lawn to be mown. Okay, I wasn't thinking about stuff like that. <laughs> so our kids then go off and... Uh, get creative. They use their own imaginations after that. They don't think we have much of an imagination. <laughs> so questions drive us, and the question I want to ask you is the question that's really preeminent in our text here, and that is, what is the gospel? Paul defines it in verse 4, but yet in verses 5 through 10, he assumes that you understand it, that you're, that you're aware of it, and I don't know that we've really addressed it yet, uh, in verse 4, he says, uh, who gave himself, grace to you and peace from God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God our Father. This is very good. It's, it's kind of the gospel really stripped down to a few essences. But he also described what the gospel is in 1 Corinthians 15. And here he wrote this. I, I uh, pulled out a little bit of the portion in the middle that I didn't think was entirely necessary for what I wanted to get across, and that is this. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. I want to expound upon this text a little bit. I have in my section here underlined various act active or passive words. Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. He died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. If you think about it, dying for our sins, dying is normally a passive activity, I would agree. But we know that Christ's death was not a passive activity. Christ's death was a very active thing. He said, I choose to die. No one's taking my life from me. I'm giving it up. 
So his whole life was oriented towards the actions that were associated with his death. That's not true for us. We are at the mercy of God. We are at the mercy of the circumstances of our world. Jesus was not. He chose the circumstances of his world. So he died for our sins, active, was buried. And here he was passive. His body was passively treated, handled, placed, uh, pulled down from the cross, placed into the tomb. So yes, here he was passive. And yet rose again. Here, obviously, he's active. He's rising from the dead. He himself is rising from the dead. So we've got this active kind of passive part and an active part. And yet look at what we have as our words. We received the gospel. We stand in the gospel. And we are saved by the gospel. It's the reverse of Christ. With Christ, we had active, passive, active. And we have passive, active, passive. We receive it. That's passive. We stand in it. Active, but I'm doing that now, right? So, I mean, I'm made to stand. God made me to stand. So God makes the Christian to stand. And so he does it. Even though we're passively participating in that standing, he's doing it. He's granted us all the powers to make that possible. And the last one is by which we're saved. And that obviously is passive. Just as he rose again was his action, his raising us up with him, having us to live in him, is our passivity in this. The reason I wanted to talk about this active-passive stuff is that there is an if in this phrase. If you hold fast that which I preach to you. And so we can think, well, okay, here we've got action then because it's conditional. All of this, everything that I've just described is conditional on our if, holding fast that word which I preached to you. But let me use an illustration here. Okay, we're dead in our sins, right? And so God resurrects us and we are still in need of salvation. And so he slaps that lifesaver down around us. He brings us out of the water. And I want you to know we're dead, but for the purpose of illustration, let's say that he, has, he just commu- uh, does CPR on us and revives us. So now he slaps that, that uh, ring around us. So now we're floating in this ocean and we're safe. We're safe and secure in the ring that God has placed on us. That's different. So see here, if you hold fast that word, imagine that ring is that word. It's that word that's holding you safe now, secure above the, sto- the waves, the storms. See, we're still in this world. We're still in this sin-filled world, this storm-tossed world. So we are safe in that ring. But yet, there's no way to get in that ring unless God puts you in that ring. Because all, like I said, all the other people, they're just dead bodies out there floating around. So you have to have God breathe life into you, put you in that ring, and now you're holding fast. So that's the degree of the activity. Again, you're active, but it's entirely based on God's active actions first. And you're just hanging on. And you were built to hang on. You were built to stand. You were built to hold on to that life preserver. So now the benefits of Christ's death to us are conditional. But they're conditional essentially on God's promise, on God's uh, long-suffering with us. This condition is not a work. It is the absence of work. It is us not relying upon our own strength, our own efforts, but relying upon God and his plan. Now, the benefits to us are great. We have this past experience of salvation. We have the present reality of comfort in Christ, 
uh, a comfort with knowing where we are, and we have the blessings of a future of heaven with him. So see, we are freed. When Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, that's what he meant. We Christians are totally freed from worries, unlike the unbeliever. The unbeliever has all the worries of the world on his shoulders, if he would only recognize it, but he often doesn't. He works hard to forget about that. But we have it all removed, and yet we are busy shouldering it, it seems. It's kind of like uh, the opposite of what you would think. The unbeliever who, who has it ignores it, rejects it, does not deal with it, whereas the believer that can be shed of it embraces it, kind of wants it. We, we throw it upon ourselves, I think, too easily. Now, this is the gospel that I described to you from 1 Corinthians 15. I want to give you one, and I think I shared this in a communion meditation a few months back, but let me share it again. This is at the tail end of a Spurgeon sermon. He was not known for giving uh, altar calls, but this is what he said at the end of a sermon. Sir, tell me how I can be saved. So this is the question that Spurgeon posits to himself. He says, what if someone after a sermon were to say this to me? The way is simply this. Our sins deserve punishment. God must and will punish sin. Jesus Christ came into this world and was punished in the place and stead of all that believe on him. Your business then this morning is to ask yourself this. Do I want a Savior? Do I want him? And my business, if you answer that question aright, is to say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart and you shall be saved. So what is the gospel? I just walked through it. But I'm not done. To say what the gospel is is not enough in our culture right now. You have to also describe what the gospel is not because there are a lot of false gospels out there. Now, I want to give you what the gospel is not in the context of imaginary conversations you might have with people. We've probably all at least thought these things, if not experienced them in our culture. So let me pretend that you're, you and I are talking, or if you're an unbeliever, you and I are talking. So now, this is what, this is what I'm uh, saying. We're in the middle of a, of a discussion of, of the Christian faith. And for some reason, what I've just said prompted you to say this, or an unbeliever to say this. Are you saying that all Hindus in India are going to hell? No, I'm not saying that. I'm only saying what Peter said in Acts 4.12. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. Are you saying that only the Christian religion can get people into heaven? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just repeating what Jesus said in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Are you saying God won't accept me apart from believing in Jesus? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just telling you what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 5. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. So does it strike you as odd that I disagree with what they accuse me of? Are you saying? And I say, no, I'm not saying. What do I say instead? God is saying. So see, what they want to make this argument about is you and them. It's you and me. No, our job as ambassadors of Christ 
is always to point them at the Word of God. Even Jesus himself, when he was debating Satan, pointed Satan at the Word of God, not at his own words. So if someone does say this, are you saying? Because I've heard that. I mean, people have asked that of me. And I didn't have the presence of mind at the time to say, no, I'm not saying that. But I do try to point people at the Word. But yet I think we do need to genuinely focus them on the Word of God. And even if at that moment we can't answer the question of the Scripture, get it to them that day. It's not hard. We know that. But sometimes when we're done with some evangelism encounter, we don't feel good about it. We didn't do very well. And so we are reluctant to go back onto that battlefield. And yet that's what God wants us to do. That's what he expects us to do. That's what he's training us to do. That's why he saved us and allows allows us to remain on this earth. He could just pop us all into heaven immediately. Wouldn't that be cozy and handy? And for us, especially me, I'm just so lazy. I mean, I'd love that to happen. But yet, that's not what God wants of me. He wants me to serve him. And the way I serve him is by living out my life as an ambassador of his. And that means I have certain responsibilities that I might not want to do, but I really should do because it's my job. So that's what I encourage you all to do, your job. Don't ask yourself, what do I want to do? And always give in to that. Ask yourself, what am I really supposed to do in this situation? What does God want me to do? Not, do, what, not what does my sinful flesh want me to do? So now, I want to dig a little bit deeper into the term evangelical. Uh, You might know that the the word from the Greek is the basis of what we call the gospel, good news. Evangelion, good news. And so what is an evangelical? This is a, a gospel definition, an evangelical definition in a nutshell. One who believes in the gospel, the good news of the gospel. One who believes in the good news of the gospel. So that's an evangelical. Now, I know that we sometimes are hard on evangelicals. We are evangelicals. So, in a sense, we are hard on ourselves. But what we're hard on are those evangelicals that are essentially soft in terms of really being an evangelical. They're not, most likely, evangelicals that we are hard on. But let me get to that. There is an organization called Barna, a man, actually, by the name of Barna, who had founded an evangelical polling organization, a Christian polling uh, company. And they, over the years, have come up with a definition of an evangelical that is very detailed. And I think it's probably true. All of us might have you know, nitpicks about it, but I think generally it's pretty true. They have nine points. Let me go through them. An evangelical has been born again, having trusted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. An evangelical, their faith is very important in their life today. They have a responsibility to share their religious beliefs with non-Christians. They believe that Satan exists as a living entity. They believe the Bible is accurate in all it teaches. They believe salvation is possible only through grace, not by personal effort or works. They believe that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth. They believe that God exists that he created the universe, that he is omniscient, omnipotent, perfect, and rules the universe today. So you can hear in there some of the the things that knock out various cults or various things that fall short of biblical Christianity. By Barna's estimates, based on all their polling data, they estimate, this was a couple years ago, but they estimate that 5% of people in the U.S., meet this definition. They agree with all of this and that they themselves meet this definition. So 5% is 1 out of 20 people. 
So one out of 20 people in this nation. Now, what's interesting, though, is that of people who say that they are Protestants, it's 11%. So one out of nine self-proclaimed Protestants are biblically evangelical, meaning that they have a problem with some of these statements that I just went through. Now, there is another company called Ellison Research that did a paper two years ago, and they asked people a question. This was a much more open-ended survey. What they wanted was honest feedback from people. And what they asked was this. They asked one question in this survey. The phrase evangelical Christian is used in the media a lot. In your own words, how would you define exactly what an evangelical Christian is? Now, the answers, and I read all the answers. It's maybe a 30-page paper. And the answers are funny. Uh, they're wrong. They're really, really wrong. Uh, many have them very right, and, and they're really God-honoring. Uh, others are scary. I mean, others just took the opportunity to really abuse Christians or Christianity. But so I have pulled out seven answers to that question that I want to share with you. In, in answering this question, what is an evangelical Christian, this is what some people said. And now what makes this interesting is that they give you a lot of background on the person that answered this question. Now, they can obviously have detected this right there during their, their, uh, their thing, but they also had questions that they asked of them that they gave information on. So let me read this. A believer in Jesus Christ that communicates their belief and faith in Jesus with others. They share the good news about Jesus with others who may not know or believe in Jesus. Seems like a pretty good answer for what an evangelical is. This was given by a 36-year-old white woman from Florida very conservative, she attends a Calvary chapel and calls herself an evangelical. Next, an evangelical Christian proselytizes and has a tendency to see their beliefs as the only valid beliefs, thus disrespecting and imposing on others' beliefs. This is a 26-year-old white woman from Pennsylvania, very liberal, does not attend worship, but knows an evangelical very well. Guess where she gets her definition from? A person who believes in the entirety of the Bible and who it says Jesus Christ is and conducts his life according to the Bible's precepts. That is a 37-year-old white man from Oregon, slightly conservative, attends a Calvary chapel and calls himself an evangelical. Again, a pretty decent definition. The fourth one. One who considers him or herself personally saved by Christ and who believes the Bible is the actual Word of God. Now listen to this. This is a 66-year-old white man from California, liberal, does not attend worship, but knows an evangelical casually. Listen to this one. This is one of the scary ones. A psycho who thinks that their way is the only way. They know a Jesus freak, right? This is a 41-year-old white man from Pennsylvania, slightly liberal, does not attend worship, but knows an evangelical very well. He knows Jesus freak. Evangelical Christians are not mainstream Christians. They do not believe that you are saved through your works while on earth, but simply by asking Jesus to be your personal savior. This is a 36-year-old white woman from Kansas, conservative, attends a Mormon congregation, and knows an evangelical casually. So she's got it right too. Here's another one. One who believes that the Bible is the absolute word of God, 
and who believes that salvation is reserved only for those who accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. This is a 76-year-old white woman from California, liberal, attends a Unitarian church, and does not know any evangelicals. But yet her definitions. So many definitions are good. I mean, these people seem to have a decent understanding as to what an evangelical is. They have their own biases against them, perhaps, but they seem to do understand it. And when you read through that 30-page report, it's obvious that the people that have the best understanding of what an evangelical is have a friend or an acquaintance, probably family member, that is an evangelical. And so they've heard it up to here with this, but yet it's sunk in. They understand it. They can even share it when asked, what is the definition of an evangelical Christian? So let me take you into the text. I know we haven't even talked about Galatians 1 really yet. So let me read verses 6 and 7. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Um, You need to understand what he's saying here. He says, a different gospel, which is not another. So see, the different gospel that he's speaking of is speaking of something that is not even of the same type of what it's being supposedly used for. It's different. It's totally different. So it's not a gospel. It's just a fake substitute. It's a falsehood that's coming in here and trying to be a gospel. And so he's pointing that out, and it's amazing how many uh, theologians wrestle with that. You know, is he really talking about a gospel? Well, then that would mean there's another gospel. And so by definition, there's more than one now. No, he's saying it's different. It's an imposter. It's fake. It's false. It's not appropriate for us to call it a gospel. And so that's why he immediately goes on to say, which is not another. Different in Greek is of a different type. Another is something that's similar but of the same type. So that's what he's saying. This is totally different, what they're doing. We don't have one that is like this. The gospel, our Christian gospel, is entirely unique. There is nothing else like it on this earth. And so don't be fooled into believing that there can possibly be another path to heaven. There isn't. The Mormon faith is all predicated on a story that was developed to comfort Arminians in their mistaken impression that God must have granted the American Indians or whomever lived in this North American continent 2,000 years ago an opportunity to get to heaven. And so they've invented, Joseph Smith invented this whole thing just to justify a misunderstanding of the Bible based on his Arminian faith. He was in error. And faith, the Mormon church began with this tiny error only 170 years ago. And yet look how popular they are because works righteousness appeals to people in a huge way. That's why that Mormon woman said, evangelical Christians are not mainstream Christians. I mean, she's got the audacity to say that. That's what the Mormon church teaches. We are not mainstream if we believe in grace only. And yet, really, isn't that in part what the Roman Catholic Church teaches too? We're not mainstream. They're mainstream. They're the ones that know that, you're, you're, uh, that grace is not enough, that it must be works. It must be through works that grace is appropriated, that grace is distributed. They've got this huge system of, of grace, you know, uh, this whole, uh, what do they call that? The Rube Goldberg machine that kind of moves the grace around to satisfy all the many needs that we have. 
But that's what the Roman Catholic Church does best. It kind of solves these problems through fairly complex, oh, and you wouldn't understand it because you're not trained in it. So I won't even bother sharing it with you. It's above you. So just, just show up, give me your money, and you'll be good. You know, isn't that a whole lot more comforting? Oh, good. I don't have to worry about that. Wonderful. On to other things. But now Christ alone, sola Christos, is the answer to such people. Christ alone. Christ alone. Don't tire of saying Christ alone. Um, when you watch, I watched a really good movie. I recommended it to, to Brian. It's called Amish Grace. And it's a 20th century Fox movie. It really portrays forgiveness extremely well, extremely well. Never once mentioned Christ. Never once. And you know, that's about as good as it gets in our secular culture. They will dance very close to all aspects of application of the Christian religion, except for the fact that it centers on Christ. And there they will not go. And there they refuse to embrace the truth. Now, what happens, though? What happens in this world where we have people that are teaching works righteousness? What should we do with such people? Well, we should do what Paul does. Let's read on. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, no, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. What does this mean, accursed? This isn't like a construction worker curse here. This is Paul damning people to hell, damning people to destruction. He anathematizes them. He sets them apart for the destruction that is their due. It is what happened to the animals in the Old Testament that were given over to sacrifice. They were anathematized. They were set apart for destruction. They were cursed. That's what Paul says we are to do with people that insist upon works righteousness, religion. We are to anathematize them. We are to set them apart for the destruction of God that is coming to them. And Paul repeats himself. He says, you know, just in case you're wanting to twist this out of context, no, let me say it again. This is the end of such people. This is what we have to do to those that oppose the gospel of Christ. But you might ask, but, you know, how can we possibly be nice guys and be that harsh with people? How can we do what God wants us to do, to be friendly and kind and nice and loved? Well, you know, like I said, there's a pecking order, right? God, God's gospel, God's word, and his church. And typically, you can't be nicer than God. We want to be sometimes, we think we can, but it doesn't work. A man by the name, a smart man by the name of Paul Brand, he was the... Uh, he was the man who managed the only leprosarium in this country down in Louisiana, he felt he could be kinder than God because these poor leprosy victims were suffering from nerve degeneration and they couldn't feel their fingers. They couldn't feel their toes. And so they would stick them in places where they would get them damaged and they'd get clipped off all the time. Or they'd mess with things and they'd just hurt themselves and they had no nerves to tell them that they were doing it. And so what he saw as the problem was true, and yet what he advocated as a solution was a solution that could avoid pain because he thought, I could do better than God. So he would have them wear little gloves 
where if they were beginning to do stupid stuff that were hurting their hands, their gloves would emit a tone or a light that would tell them, you're going too far. But what would they do? They would ignore the little lights and the little tones. It didn't bother them. So he found that he had to cause these people pain. Now, it doesn't mean they couldn't just take off the glove and do what they were doing. They could do that, and they did that, and they often damaged themselves. But he found that he couldn't put on a glove with them that would emit a tone that would cause them to heed the warning that his calibration was doing to them. You're going to rip off your fingers if you continue in this. I don't care. I want this jar open, you know, and I got the weapon to do it. Instead of switching to a tool, instead of doing something different, they just persist because they don't suffer any consequences of it. The next day, their finger falls off. Who could have thought that it was due to my opening that jar or doing this other thing yesterday with that, without using a proper tool? But yet, these people, Dr. Brand, wanted to be kinder than God. And yet, if we want to be kinder than God, all we'll wind up doing is serenading people on the road to hell. You, kindness will not lead some people to God. You need to get in their face. You need to upset them. You need to rock their world. They might not like you for doing that. They might persecute you for doing that. But yet that's what you're called to do. Are you willing to do it? Are you willing to be courageous in order to share the gospel, to suffer the opposition of the enemy for doing what it is that you're called to do? Are you willing to do that? Or do you want to just go along to get along? I shouldn't do this at work. I'll needlessly, I'll needlessly offend people, and then I might get in trouble anyway. Well, I don't even want to do this with people from work because then I have to work with them. You know, I, don't, I want to maintain a good working relationship with them, I, so I can't destroy that relationship. We can justify it in a hundred ways, our not sharing the truth with people. But the fact is, if we really dig down deep, we just don't want to go there. We don't want to be disliked. We don't want to have to go through difficult circumstances. We just are afraid. We lack faith. We lack courage. And that's what God says he can give us. We are ambassadors of Christ. If you believe, if you know that you have been translated out of this world of darkness into his marvelous world of light, then you owe it to God to serve him like this. Now, I want to close with an illustration. Uh, first, I'll give you one last question uh, that was in that, that question, and it was, uh, what is an evangelical Christian? And this is one man's response. A Christian whose main focus is on spreading the gospel. However, they rarely do this. This is a 26-year-old white man from Colorado, a conservative, who attends a non-denominational church and knows an evangelical very well. It's interesting, he didn't consider himself an evangelical because there's, essentially you can say, I'm an evangelical or I know one. And he is attending church and he just says, I know an evangelical very well. There is a question that we ask, what shall I do with Jesus? This is the question that uh, was asked uh, by uh, Pontius Pilate. You know, what shall I then do with this Jesus? And this is from a 19th century book called New Testament Illustrations. Sooner or later, to everyone comes the question which Pilate asked the Jews. What then shall I do with Jesus, which is called the Christ? No one can settle the matter for you. 
each soul must make its own reply. Careless, indifferent fellow sinner, do you think to evade replying to this all-important question while you live? If you pass your life thus, you've already answered it, unconsciously to yourself perhaps, but it has had a reply in the rejection of him. But when at the judgment you stand before your despised Savior, who you will, will, you will not then think, what shall I do with Jesus? Your one thought will be, oh, what will he do with me? Then you may be constrained to ask yourself these questions. What can he do with me? Can he receive me into heaven when I've not received him into my heart? What ought he to do with me? What will he do with me? Some people say, and the phrase was popular for a while, give Jesus a chance. But Jesus is not the one that needs a chance. We are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for having given us this chance. You've given us your word. You've given us this plan of salvation that only requires that we humble ourselves and sacrifice all that we have that we value that is only rubbish in order to embrace Christ. We pray, Father, that you would have us to be soldiers in your uh, kingdom, uh, sowers in your field, that we would uh, not be uh, prone to worry about the consequences of what it is that we're doing, that what it is that you've called us to do, but that we would do the work and that we would allow you to dictate the consequences. We thank you, Father, for your many blessings. We ask you now to be with us to come into our hearts, to fill us with a love for you and a desire to do your will in the week ahead. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.